Hey, Dad. <laughs> hey, daughter. <laughs> I think we're live here. I think we're streaming live on Facebook. Great. All right, well, let's get started. <laughs> I'm glad to see you, my father. Likewise. <laughs> and for folks watching, uh, my name is Sierra Flanagan. I'm joined with my dad, Ted Flanagan, here. Um, this is our second installment of the Net Positive Energy Crash Course. Last time we focused on microgrids, and today we're going to focus on energy storage. And for a little context, my dad, Ted Flanagan, president of EcoMotion, is an expert in this stuff. And even as a sustainability professional myself, it's hard to wrap my head around these very technical concepts like energy storage. So I'm going to be picking his brain today. Um, if you have any live questions, feel free to put them in the chat and I'll try to get to them. Um, but we're going to start super high level. Um, Dad, we know that energy storage is a big issue with renewables, mostly because renewable energies are intermittent. So it's hard to bottle them. So from a, you know, a thousand foot standpoint, can you tell us why is energy storage, what is energy storage and why is it important? Sure, sure. It's so good to be here uh, this morning with you on our second installment of the crash course. But, you know, energy storage is, is really the key to uh, the clean energy future that we're all talking about. I mean, just putting it really simply, if you think about if you have a solar system on your house or in your school or in a building, uh, the sun shines for about five hours a day, uh, full sunshine. Uh, that's the number of hours of insulation. So what happens at night? Uh, if you don't, if you're not connected to the grid, if you don't have a, a utility source of power. And so what we really are, are doing conceptually is we're saying, okay, we're going to capture as much sunshine as we can during the day. We're going to use what we need and we're going to store the rest of it in, in a storage mechanism. And batteries is, we're going to talk a lot about batteries this half hour. So whether it's wind power uh, or, or whatever form of renewable it is, uh, we need to be able to store it to be able to use it when the wind isn't blowing or when the sun isn't, isn't shining. So I like the way you put it. We can't bottle electricity. Uh, unlike gasoline, right? We could put it in the tank and we could store that. Uh, we can store natural gas in tanks, uh, in caverns, but electricity can't be bottled. It, it can't be stored. So it needs to be converted to another form. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so we can basically so that we can, we can use it later. Um, even if you think about the most fundamental kind of storage in the electricity sector, it's big hydroelectric dams, right? And so during the spring, uh, when all the water, when all the snow melts and all the water runs off of the mountains, uh, we collect that water in hydroelectric dams. And then that allows us to gradually release that water throughout the year. So that's, a, that's an example of storage that we already have in our power system. But we just don't have that much of it. I think hydro is probably about five or six percent of our total total power supply. Yeah. So this is something we've been doing for a while. Uh, it's not a brand new technology. Could you give us a little bit more history of electricity storage? Yeah, I think I think the hydroelectricity is the is the most fundamental example. And then and then we have something in the United States and probably different parts of the world called pumped energy storage or pumped hydro energy storage, where you have two lakes uh, and during the off peak periods, we pump a lot of water up to the upper lake. 
And then during peak periods, we release that water. Here in Los Angeles, we have one of these pump storage facilities. Uh, it can hold, it can provide a gigawatt of power. That's a thousand megawatts of power for five hours when we need it. So at night, we're pumping water up in this Castaic Lake from the lower lake to the upper lake. And then during the daytime, when we are during our peak periods, we release that water to uh, wow. generate one gigawatt for, for five hours. Um, there's lots of, this, this has been an elusive challenge for a long time. How do you store uh, electricity? And there's been, lo there's lots of different types of storage. Uh, and we, we've written about this, um, but there's been ways that folks have tried converting electricity to ice. Uh, there's some really interesting ice bear systems. If you're gonna be cooling with electricity, then why not convert it to ice right off the bat? and then use that later. Inversely, electricity has been used to create molten salts that can hold heat for long periods of time and then be used to generate electricity. Uh, wind turbines out in the Midwest are being combined with compressed air systems. So compressed air is another way that we can store power and then release it later. Flywheels have been used and there's some really interesting flywheel technologies now, the materials revolution where you got super high, uh, high efficiency flywheels that are storing that electricity in motion. Um, hydropower, we've talked about tidal power. There's some interesting tidal systems in different parts of the world, some in the South China Sea and in Korea, where when at high tide, you got all this water, you dam it off, the water drops at low tide and then gradually we're gradually releasing. And another form of storage of electricity that's getting a lot of attention is this whole notion of power to gas, where we'd actually create hydrogen fuel from uh, by electrolyzing water with excess electricity, and then having this hydrogen that again can go into our, our gas pipelines and that can be effectively stored. So there's at least, um, you know, depending on which articles you're reading, there's at least 10 different kinds of energy storage out there, and yet, What's really happening right now is that lithium ion and the, and the batteries that are being used in Teslas, uh, in our cars, and, in our, and now more and more in our homes, they're, they're really stealing the show in terms of storage. Yeah, and I know you are also fascinated by, the, by types of gravitational storage and the energy vault system in particular. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I just think it's so intriguing. Uh, you know, the, we mentioned that the pumped storage is probably the, the most cost-effective way of storing electricity, lots of electricity, <clears throat> and releasing it over time. But there's a guy named Bill Gross, who's a, a fascinating inventor, heads up something called the Idea Lab out here in Pasadena. And he's been working on a project called the Energy Vault. And what, he, what we realize is, is that we just don't have a lot of geographic areas where we've got two different lakes that you can right. massive amounts of water. So he's experimented with all sorts of things, like what if you use an abandoned railroad car, a railroad train? And during off-peak, you know, you run it up to the top of the mountain, and then during peak, you let it run down. Um, so he's experimented with all of these different things, but there's not mountains everywhere either. So how do you deal with that? Well, he ended up figuring out that let's take a really low-cost material, like water is a low-cost material, but let's take a low-cost material like rock and cement. Let's create these big, heavy blocks, and then let's use cranes like you would see at a construction site to create these towers of blocks during off-peak, and then during peak periods, the cranes bring, release the blocks. And as the blocks are being released, they generate electricity coming down. Okay. So 
Fascinating concept. This, that concept, that company, Energy Vault, is now building a 500 megawatt storage project in India. And uh, it's just an intriguing pursuit that so many people in the energy industry are, 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 are following is just how do we capture electricity? How do we store that intermittent renewable electricity so that we can use it when we want to use it? So everybody's looking at these different systems uh, for doing that. And everybody's looking to try to do it as cost effectively as possible. Right. So, yeah, talk about the, the lithium ion revolution. Obviously, there's some more kind of traditional ways of storing energy using natural resources. Um, but what is all the craze about with lithium ion and what, what promise does it offer the world? And also, what are some of the challenges with it? Yeah, the lithium, lithium ion, I, I like to call it the lithium ion revolution. And then some people would say that lithium is the new gasoline. And it's, it's largely because of, this, of, of the pursuit of electric vehicles that there's been so much focus on, on the lithium, on lithium batteries. You know, lithium is the lightest metal. Um, it, is, um, it, is, uh, it has some drawbacks that, that we'll talk about, um, but it, 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 it's very effective at storing power. It has no memory effect. It, um, it is very efficient in, in terms of charging a battery and discharging a battery. So, so it was really the power electronics um, industry, uh, uh, lithium batteries for cell phones, uh, going into all of our consumer electronics that refined that technology and Elon Musk and others, not just, not just Tesla, but LG and Samsung and others said, let's, let's, let's aggregate those. Let's put all those little batteries together and create larger battery packs. And so what we've seen is, is a dramatic movement uh, to build batteries cheaply and to build larger and larger batteries cheaply so that they can be used for all these different applications. So we've got batteries that are being used in cars and we've got batteries now that are being used in buildings. In fact, I was just on a boat, a hybrid, a hybrid electric boat. So lots of, uh, lots of different um, applications uh, for lithium ion. The, um, there's, there's an awful lot of work going on right now in the battery world where all sorts of chemists are working on all sorts of chemistries and battery chemistries. I'm not sure that lithium ion is going to be the ultimate battery in our cars and in our homes. Mm -hmm. I think there'll probably be other other chemistries that are that are that prove better. But is the is the precipitous decline of cost of lithium ion batteries that is ushering in this whole electrification of, of vehicles and now also electrification of all of our buildings and creating hybrid buildings with with battery backup systems in them. So you said there's some alternatives to lithium, which is a finite resource, right? It is a finite resource. It's only mined in certain places. Like there's a lot of lithium in Bolivia and Chile. So it's, a, it's another one of these minerals that uh, has geographic limitations. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll just jump to a couple other issues. Lithium is just a, a really bizarre element. You know, it's used, people eat lithium. They take lithium as a mood stabilizer, right? It's used for people really? that are depressive. So people are literally eating lithium, um, uh -huh. eating cigars. Uh, are perpetrated to make people a little bit high because of the soils that the Cuban cigar, uh, that the tobacco is grown in is high in lithium. So lithium is, is, is kind of this really bizarre material that is very effective for us in this high technology application and also in, in other applications. 
there are issues with it. It's flammable. Right. Uh, it's in cases explosive. Um, and you know, we've heard about cars blowing up, uh, not many of them, fortunately, uh, when the power management is not working right and they get overcharged, they get overheated. Right. Lithium is, is finite, as we talked about, limited, limited geographic spread. So it, it has its limitations. And I think what we're going to, I think in 10, 15 years, we'll look back and we'll say, boy, lithium really was the, the gateway to mm. this whole hybrid electric movement. Um, we've looked at a vanadium flow battery, uh, which is interesting. Vanadium flow is literally two big tanks that are flowing back and forth, these electrolytes um, in this, as a storage medium. Vanadium flow is not flammable. It's not toxic. It doesn't degrade. Lithium, ba ba lithium batteries degrade over in about 10 years. You really got to replace them. So again, I, I think that the lithium ion battery is is uh, ushering in this revolution uh, in, in a very, very, very positive way. And it will probably be replaced over time with other chemistries. Um, and are these man-made chemistries or are there other natural minerals that we would use for these alternative battery packs? I think uh, all of the above. Um, there's, there's just, I, I, I'm really not an expert on all the chemistries. I, I read about all these different attempts and people are saying, this is the next, this is the next, uh, the next evolution. Um, right. But just, uh, I think suffice to say, and my friend Matt Harper, who is a MIT PhD, he's the head, lead chemist for what was Avalon batteries, now Infinity. I, I think he would say that there's just lots and lots of smart people working on this. And the, the, the goal is, is to bring the cost of batteries down uh, to about $100 a kWh. Right now, they're at about $1,000 a kWh. Five years ago, they were at $2,000 a kWh. So we're trending in the right direction. But the goal is to bring the cost down and to bring the safety up and to not end up with a big hazardous waste issue on our hands as well. So for folks watching who are interested in batteries, whether it's a hybrid vehicle or a power wall, would you say they ought to wait for the technology to evolve, like you're saying, for them to become safer? Or should they act now and move forward with the current technology that we have on the market? Act now. I mean, I've always said this. If you, if, if you can do something cost effectively today, do it. Don't right. wait for next next year's technology or technology five or ten years down the line. So, you know, start creating savings today. And energy storage. Let's just focus on where it's being used. Uh, we're doing a lot of projects um, with you know public buildings. Uh, we're putting you know big batteries in, in public buildings. They're being used in schools. They're being used in commercial buildings. They're being used in homes. And there's lots of different ways of of getting value out of the batteries. Um, one is just energy resilience. You just, if the grid goes down, you wanna have a certain amount of, of, of capacity or energy on hand see, to use for your home or for your business or whatnot. Um, you know, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the batteries have largely been used for clipping peak demand. So for commercial buildings, and this is a little technical, but you imagine a commercial building, people arrive in the morning, power consumption goes up, and that building has a load profile over the course of a day. Well, if you can trim off the very peak of that load file and clip that very peak of the load profile, you can actually save money on your utility bill. You can lower your demand charges on your utility bill. So, so there's lots of applications today for demand, um, demand peak demand clipping, 
energy arbitrage where you buy power cheap at night and then you, you uh, discharge your batteries during the day when power prices are high. Um, there's the resilience piece. So there's lots of different ways that we can use these batteries. And the key is just figuring out what is the use application and what is the most cost-effective way of, of getting that done. For folks at home, um, you know, te the Tesla Powerwall has gotten an awful lot of attention. It's not the only residential battery provider, but it's certainly one of the best. You know, Tesla Powerwall has about 14 kilowatt hours in it, uh, and it can be mounted on your, outside of your house. It can either cover your whole load, or if you can gang them together and get a bunch of them and cover your whole house's load, or you can have a sub panel and just power some of your critical loads. So, so we're seeing um, many people, especially in California now, are given all of the concerns about power outages, you know, getting into having energy resilient systems and they just want to have resilience. So if the grid goes down, they can operate their telephones and their computers and some of the other critical loads in the house. Yeah. So can you elaborate more on the energy resilience piece? Like maybe on a one-on-one level, what is energy resilience? And then Part two of the question is how does energy storage play into energy resilience? Yeah, I think the, the re energy resilience is one of the buzzwords. I mean, we last time we talked about microgrids, that's another buzzword. And, and really being energy resilient in today's um, use of this term is if the grid goes down, you can still operate. You right. still have some energy. You still have some resiliency. And we're finding that the critical loads are usually, as I mentioned, the IT, the communications, any medical devices, sometimes refrigeration, different, different ventilation, different critical loads that we want to back up. So um, why, is that, why is that important? Uh, given climate change, uh, we are experiencing more and more crazy weather patterns and the grid is being taken down. Mm -hmm. um, here in California, we have PSPS events, public safety power shutoff events, where if the fire danger is really high, the utility has the right to turn off the grid. So imagine uh, if you lived in Napa County and your power was turned off for a week, what would you do? And of course you'd have no refrigeration, you have no phone. So now we're designing, now we're designing systems, companies like ours are designing systems so that we can bring solar in and bring batteries in and have controls there so that if that grid goes down, we have energy resilient facilities. One of the contracts, so Ecomotion has two different contracts. Now we're working with cities here in California. We want we're being asked to figure out how to make public buildings resilient. Well, you know, in the old days, they would just have a generator. Right? They have a big diesel generator and that building would be as resilient for as long as there was fuel in the tank. Now, if there's a long-term outage and you run out of fuel, you're out of luck, right? But what we're doing now is we're creating carbon-free energy resilience. We're putting up solar, we're combining it with storage and very sophisticated controls so that we can operate uh, in an islanded mode, if the grid goes down, we can operate it in an islanded mode indefinitely because the sun will always recharge the batteries over time. Um, and what about the utility? Are the utilities seeing batteries as sort of, or this new energy storage technology as, as a boon to them and sort of within their best interest as well? Or is it kind of contentious with people all of a sudden having microgrids? Um, what's, would you say there's a utility stance on energy storage? Yeah, I think utility, you, there's utility scale energy storage going on and the Koreans have been way out ahead on this, um, but in America we're, we're catching up fast. So really big batteries can benefit a utility grid. 
And just, just as we homeowners experience peak periods and we're concerned about the prices, the utilities experiencing peak periods and they're having to scramble to buy power on wholesale markets and fire up old generators and all sorts of stuff. So having resilience, having battery capacity is fantastic for utilities. Uh, and we're, we're seeing that our utility here, right here in Glendale, we're putting in a 50 megawatt battery bank, bank at, our, at our power plant located right there. Now, now, there's another kind of storage, which is called behind the meter. And, and that's behind the consumer's meter. The same with solar. When you have solar on your house, or if you have storage on your house, that's behind the meter. That's really your business. Right. And that has been quite threatening to utilities to have people getting into the power business and generating their own power and storing their power. And, and so that's been a little bit threatening. What we really are starting to see is some progressive utilities that are saying, hey, wait a second. That's a virtual power plant. If I've got 5,000 homeowners, say, in the town, and they've all got battery packs in, in their homes, well, I can, just, I can just add that all up, and I can figure out what is that value to the utility grid. So we're seeing utilities now that are starting to promote <laughs> distributed storage. And when I say distributed, I mean at the household level or at the school level or at the business level, and really make, make homes part of the utility infrastructure. You know, in the old days, in California, in the old days, I'm talking five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, there was a thousand power plants in California and that was it. And now we have a situation where we have tens of thousands of solar systems that are all integrated. And, and now we're gonna have thousands and thousands and ultimately tens of thousands. I think every home will have storage at some point, but all that our power system has shifted from a centralized structure to a now more and more decentralized structure. And when you start to think about it, by having all that storage in our system, we're starting to have all sorts of resiliency in our system. So it's very attractive. Right, and then as we'll talk about more in later episodes, but this vehicle to grid movement and actually utilizing the batteries in the vehicles as further resilience. You know, I love talking about vehicle to grid. I look forward to the next episode on that. And Think about it this way. I mentioned that a Tesla Powerwall, and most of us are familiar, a Tesla Powerwall is about 42 inches by 29 by six or seven inches deep. It's not that large of a unit. That holds 14 kilowatt hours, right? So uh, people uh, probably are not very familiar with how much power their house uses. And of course, it varies dramatically by season. I can tell you that our house here, when, it's, when we're in the, in the heat of summer, we're at around 40 kilowatt hours a day. So... That's quite a bit. So a Tesla Powerwall, it's only got 14 kilowatt hours. That's not much, right? That's not gonna, that's not gonna power my house. I'm gonna have to have a right. sub panel and I'm gonna figure out, okay, I just want it to power the refrigerator and a few other situations, a few other outlets and that's it. Well, I have a Chevy Bolt sitting in the garage here. It's got a 60 kilowatt hour battery pack, right? So, and most of the time it's just sitting there. I can't access it right now. Right. But in the future, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that all of our cars will be electric, all of our vehicles will be electric, and all of them will be able to plug in to the grid. So imagine this, uh, imagine that the utility needs power um, at a certain peak period and has arrangements with thousands of homeowners or, or car owners, electric vehicle owners, that they can call on those and then and that the utility, uh, the vehicle owners can be compensated. I envision a day when you're, when you're at the airport and you leave your car at the airport to go on vacation. 
that the, you, you plug it in and the utility will be using your battery, will be using your storage, and you'll be paid to, to park your car at the airport instead of, instead of the inverse. One other little fun story. There's a stadium being built in the Netherlands where there's got a parking lot and they're gonna set up every single parking spot with vehicle to grid capability. Now imagine a stadium, the load profile in a stadium. Now it just goes way up and there's nothing happening at the stadium and all of a sudden there's a game and then there's a huge amount of power being used. Well, what if you had arrangements with, with every single fan that came to the stadium that they, that they could discharge their car or discharge the power out of their car during the game to cover the peak demand of the game? So you could, if you do the math, you could figure out that the vehicles could easily power the stadium. So I think that the future is going to be um, marked by this really fascinating integration. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to have all sorts of clean energy resources being generated, you know, offshore wind. We're going to have solar going on. We're going to have geothermal, hydro, um, intercoastal wind, um, or in, wind in the in the interior, and then we'll have and then we'll have a whole fabric of ways that we can capture that mm. ways that we can use that energy later, basically. And it may be you know batteries will be a big part of it, but it'll be pump storage. It may be gravitational storage. It may be flywheels. It may be tidal. It may you know the, really the list goes on of clever ways. That we can that we can store it, you know, using it as a hydrogen fuel is is one of my favorites. So we're we're looking at a, at a future where storage is going to enable clean energy use, and we mm -hmm. can retire. Well, we used to have what we call base load power plants; those are the ones that just operate all the time. The right. coal plants, the, you know, the nuclear plants. All those will be able to be retired because we can fulfill these load profiles with a combination of, you know, this with this mosaic of renewables backed up with this whole fabric of storage that allows us to operate 24-7. Sounds good to me. And I I have to ask, uh, you know, with all of these batteries that are coming online, what is the end of life kind of situation for them? Like, are we talking a lot of waste and pollution? Or is there a way to creatively harness the these retired batteries as well as some of this retired, you know, energy infrastructure that's going to be um, obsolete. This is a really huge area. It's, it's huge for solar panels also. Right. And we're now we're now we're and wind turbine blades, you know, the, the, now we're starting to get to a point where we've been in this renewable energy revolution for long enough that some of our technologies are, are reaching the end of their lives. Right. And so we have to, and so there's going to be a tremendous uh, field, I would say, for, for young people that are looking at how to fit into this clean energy space. There's a niche, is yeah. getting into the recycling of, of these products. But batteries are, are, are um, this is why the chemistry is so important, that I think that we find a chemistry that lasts longer and that could be used, easily upgraded, like the vanadium flow versus the lithium. Mm. Um, one thing that, you know, sort of as an interim measure, if a battery loses 20% or 30% of its capacity over, over 10 years, well, then it's going to, then it can shift from being used in a mobile application where weight is really a huge issue. The power density ratio is really a huge issue. And then we can put them in a stationary application. So all, in theory, all the car batteries, all the bus batteries that, that will become spent or not cost effective for a mobile application, they can all be used in, in fields and be put into in stationary applications hmm. where they can be supporting the power grid. Um, but I, I do think that you're, you're raising a, a really important issue. I don't know that much about it. Um, 
but recycling of batteries is, is going to be an absolutely huge business and a critical business because obviously we can't have a solution that creates another problem. We need solutions that. <laughs> Virtuous solutions. So we're nearing the end of our chat, um, but for folks who are still interested in energy storage, can you recommend some resources and, and any other kind of calls to action that, that you are aware of as a resident, but also as a business owner? Yeah, well, I, 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 please go to our website. We do have white papers on storage that I think that you may find interesting and white papers on vehicle to grid. And we didn't even get into it, but the, in the future storage can provide all sorts of grid services through what we call ancillary services, very technical, but there's all sorts of opportunities out there. So the EcoMotion website certainly has a, a lot we, we are members of the California Solar and Storage Association, mm -hmm. uh, where we're getting tons of information about, uh, about storage. There are great trade shows that are kind of overwhelming. I mean, there's just so many, I guess they're really, they give tremendous optimism, but they can be quite overwhelming. Both the solar and the storage trade shows have become, have become really huge. Uh, and just keep watching this space. Um, there, there just seems to be more and more opportunity um, we're working with schools, working with commercial buildings. We can put storage in very cost effectively. Uh, we're working on energy resiliency projects, so we can we really can figure out how to create these carbon-free, resilient solutions that are I think going to be really more and more important as we go forward. Right. So if there's a will, a will, there is definitely a way. So don't hesitate to be in touch out there. And for now, thank you so much, Dad. I feel very much enlightened around this issue and I'm excited to learn more in this series. Um, so stay tuned everybody and have a wonderful Friday and rest of your weekend. Dad, I love you. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Great conversation. <laughs> All right. See you later, everybody. <laughs>